Rob Jones on Radio Glamorgan. My guest, I'm very pleased to introduce him, is Mr. Christopher Ansey, who is a best-selling author and has just released his book, Polish the Crown. Good evening, Christopher. Hiya, Rob. How are you doing? Nice to be here. Yeah, um, very well, thank you. And how do the words best-selling author sound to you? Um, well, they sound amazing. Um, I think officially we have to put lgbtq best-selling author on it um but um but that's good enough for me i'm very 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 happy with uh how things are going i think it's you yourself a disservice because i believe that your book i i understand what you're saying uh, about the lgbtq uh chart because you were in the top 10 i believe um it was. Uh, but also you were in the biography chart uh certainly in the top 20 and you replaced or pushed out some luminaries uh, such as Stephen Fry and Graham Norton. I did, I did, yeah. um, which I'll um, probably uh, uh, want to remember forever um, <laughs> because that only lasted for one day. Oh, but um, but that that was the um, actually it was the LGBTQ biography chart. All right, okay. Well, let's not run you, run you but, down but to start it, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's what. <laughs> That's one more day than I've had in the chat, so put it like this, man, to be honest. So uh, I suppose the obvious question is, why write a memoir? Um, I think back in 2015, I was living in um, on the Suffolk border at the time, and I was off from work, and I was uh, I had a bit of an epiphany, to be honest, which sounds a bit dramatic. And um, I felt like I had almost woken up from this huge cycle of cause and effect. And... Um, I felt like it almost made its way through a, a bit of a storm and had uh, woken up on the beach mm-hmm. the next day and the sun was out. And I just started thinking about how I'd got to that point um, and where I'd been and what things um, had happened or occurred in my life, etc. And I love poetry. So, like I said, I had some time off, so I started writing poetry uh, around the defining moments of my life and periods of my life that stood out. Um, and they turned into short stories, and I guess I realised that I was developing the context for story that I wish I had read when I was a teenager. Yeah. So I decided that maybe I should write the book that the younger me would have wished for. Okay. And so um, Polish the Chrome began. Well, yeah, I think uh, just to clarify for people who haven't read the book yet, um, and I can heartily recommend it, having bought a copy myself. But there's there apart from obviously, for want of a better word, your life story in there, there is a lot of poetry. Um, and in fact, I'm going to ask you to read out a few poems, if you don't mind, over the course of the programme. Um, but did you have any kind of literary influences, anybody that you looked to, uh, or was it just you and uh, your style only? Um, it was very much uh, me and my style only. Um, there are people in the um, in the poetry world that I look up to massively, um, but I mean, the real grits. So, you know, Dylan Thomas mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there are, there are huge people in, in that arena that I look up to. But, um, but yes, very much my own style. Sure. And I think I, think I went with um, rhyming poetry, which isn't really um, in vogue at the moment because it's seen as, uh, as almost a bit more historic and not, mm. and not um, what people are doing at the moment. Yeah. But, that the sound of words are important to me, and the, and the rhythm and the um, the uh, the marriage of words is I love that. So um, it's very much my style. Yeah, and I I've got to say I, I obviously for uh, 
to be obvious, we we know each other before. Previously, we worked together, and and yeah, when yeah. I was reading the book, I could hear you saying those words. So I, I, I would say that it definitely is your style, and uh, f- you know, if people think that. With due respect, because it's the story of a gay man and what you've gone through, therefore maybe it wouldn't be as relevant to a straight man like myself. I totally disagree in that I took a lot from the book. Maybe it opened my eyes to what uh, the LGBTQ go through in day-to-day live in that as a straight man i don't so i i suppose what i'm saying is i heartily recommend it for anybody in any walk of life to read and it not only is moving and i'm unashamed to say that at times i was kind of moved to tears but other times i was laughing belly laughs because it's so funny so i commend your effort it's it's a it's a really good read mate um great thank you very much no problem I, I asked uh, for some questions uh, from uh, potential listeners uh, and uh, one of our own here at Radio Glamorgan, a gentleman by the name of Howard uh, Jacobson, has come back and asked uh, if you would comment on how difficult was the process of getting a book published uh, and what was the overall experience like for you? I think because of the type of person that I am, I, I, I'd read an awful lot about horrendous experiences of lots of rejection and um, it can take years to secure um, the right people to support your book and an agent and then get the right publisher to support it. So um, for me, it was particularly easy because I decided that I was never going to give an option to someone to dismiss it or to throw it out. Mm-hmm. So I knew I would self-publish from the beginning right? Um, so that I could have complete control over it. Um, but what I ended up with is is kind of a hybrid model where I was very fortunate the publishers that I used, New Generation, um, were really supportive of the book. Um, and what I kind of ended up with was a, a hybrid um, publishing arrangement. Um, but it was very easy because I decided to um, to take control of it and not give a big publishing house the opportunity to throw it out. Okay, and uh, I suppose we may as well get a plug in. How do we go about, or how do people go about getting your book? Where Where's the best place to go to buy it? In reality, I mean, I would love to say that, you know, go into the, the small bookshops um, and the independents, um, but ultimately it's, it's, it's available on Amazon um, mm-hmm. in the, you know, all over the world. Um, so Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, Um and yeah, so I would say uh, go there and get it. There isn't the the right level of support just yet for independent authors in um, some of the smaller independent bookshops. Right. Um, however, if you are in, in London, then um, Gaze the Word is a fantastic bookshop and uh, they've stocked it. Okay, uh, right. Um, what I thought we'd do is, uh, uh, obviously I don't want to give away too much of the book uh, because it's... Uh, uh, obviously, we want to go. People want to go and buy it, um, but I, I thought I'd just pick out maybe topics or themes that run through the book, and maybe we can have a brief chat about them. Just uh, if there's anything you feel is either funny or moving, or, or you just want to say. Um, but the one thing I kind of came burning through for me uh, when reading the book is the love of your family um, and your immediate family, and maybe if you'd be good enough, if you could elaborate, because I know you've got 
brothers um, and you speak about them. So obviously I know it's difficult, uh, grandparents, aunties, uncles. Um, if you maybe just uh, run us through the Anstey household, but if you'd be good enough to leave your parents, who um, uh, I, I believe, although you might disagree, are the biggest influence on your life to last, because um, if you would be good enough, there is a fantastic poem in your book called The Man That Stood In Front Of Me, which I believe is about your dad. And I'd be grateful if you would, be, you would do me the honour of just reading that maybe at the end. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm very fortunate. Um, and I come from a very traditional Welsh family, which is very close. Um, and I grew up in a, a very traditional household um, where um, I had two older brothers, uh, Geraint and Stuart. Um, I wouldn't say that we saw eye to eye when we were kids, um, because we were kids. Um, but but we're always deep down very, very supportive, um, albeit very different to me. Um, and I guess that was one of the things that first I first recognised in my childhood that I, where I felt a bit different because I knew that I liked different things. I, I saw things differently. Um, but but very very supportive um, brothers, especially when I did come to coming out later in life, and um, I couldn't have asked for more support. Really, they were fantastic. But um, but yeah, even to a wider family point of view, I mean, one of the most inspirational people in my life was was my grandmother, um, Etta. She was just um, like all of us. She wasn't perfect. She had her uh, moments, but to me, she was as close to it as you're going to get. And she was a very um, I probably got my sense of humour from her. Um, and she was a very, very um, loving person. But more than that, she was a fantastic storyteller. Right. And I think that um, her storytelling, my grandfather's storytelling, and my parents uh, have both have all heavily influenced my desire to tell stories and write stories and um, and to be creative in that way. So, yeah. so yeah, I've had a I've been fortunate to have a very um, loving family all my life which has made up for some of the challenges i've experienced but strangely enough even though i was experiencing some of the challenges i did when i was a child uh, and bullying i wanted to protect them from that uh, right. so um i didn't feel like i could go to them about that because it was too too ugly to share yeah. so um it's interesting how how things work out in that way but yeah my um you are very correct in what you say about my parents so um, my mum's Marie and my dad's Alec, and they are both massively um, influential to me in terms of um, how dedicated they were as parents and how loving they were and, and all the things they taught me. But um, they've always allowed me to be me, and they've always encouraged me to be exactly um, who I wanted to be, um, and have only ever supported me. Uh, and I, as I say, if you would be good enough, um, I'd love to hear the man that stood in front of me. On air, all day, every day. Broadcasting from the largest hospital in Wales. We are Radio Glamorgan. The smallest I will ever be, before the teenager came to be. In a train, just you and me, a coffee shop, chocolate and tea. On your shoulders I would smile, childhood lasted just a while. Strong hands held on to me so tight, the safest place of all. When yesterday I didn't see the man who stood in front of me. I never stopped to take the time to understand your heart. Seasons passed and I grew tall, independence bloomed, my heart grew small. Always the one to tell me no, I didn't understand at all. I grew hungry to find me, something you could already see. 
tomorrow was about the man who didn't know the way. Lessons learned and time has seen, a story of what has always been. In that story, you were there with me, always at my side. I see you now in you and me, I the apple, you the tree. The patience of the strongest heart, I see, I understand. One day I hope to be like you, contented to love just like you do, contented and so full of peace for all that life can bring. You're loved by all that also see the man that stood in front of me, your gentle kindness now adored by the children at your side, the lucky ones that share your light, the happy day, the playful night. From a distance I now smile for the days when that was me. So never has there ever been a man so happy to be me, a man because you loved me from the bottom of your heart. Time can fly and days be had, and all of them you'll be my dad. Your son can only wish to be the man that stood in front of me. Excellent. It was very moving. Um, I said to you uh, when we were discussing about the programme previously, obviously I'm a dad, heck I'm a grandfather now, but um, if if my son ever wrote anything uh, like that to me, I would be so proud. And I guess your dad is equally proud of what you've become, Chris. So, um, yeah, I'm very proud. Uh, can you just... Uh, there's one other person in your family I wouldn't mind you just elaborating on, um, and that's Mr. Fred Anstey, and why, although I, I believe you never actually met him, why uh, he had an influence on, I think, your dad and yourself? Yeah, I think, uh, I'm glad you asked, actually, because I think that well, Fred was my dad's uncle, um, and in the book, um, I've put a chapter on it called Half a Crown, Um and I think he stood out to me um, because he, in my view, was a freedom fighter of his time. Mm -hmm. He um, was a young lad, uh, 21, I believe, um, and was sent off to war. And I, th I think what's powerful and personal about the story is my dad was just a baby. And the night before he went to war, he went to visit my dad and held my dad and placed half a crown in his hand. Um, and... The next day, he was shipped off to war, and off to war he went, and unfortunately, he um, he only survived the first few weeks of the war and was was killed on English soil before even leaving. Um, and um, and his name was left off the cenotaph in the um, the local town where I was born, in Porth, and my dad had to to fight to get his name recognised and get all of the paperwork um, completed. Because even though my dad would have been too young to have ever remembered him, he remembers the story of the night that he visited him and he mm -hmm. held him. And um, eventually my dad got uh, Fred Anstey's name on the cenotaph and it's right there at the top. And um, at one point I was looking at a, a house, um, I was looking at buying a, a, a small chapel conversion um, in, in Porth, and I was just unsure whether to buy it or not. And um, I was only half aware of this story, and I wandered outside, and I was walking around the cenotaph reading the names, and the first name I saw was Fred Anstey. Mm. And um, it kind of uh, sealed the deal on the house. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a sign for me. But, um, but yeah, the story touched, touched me, to be honest, and um, I'm a great believer in not allowing stories of people that have passed and people that have fought in wars and been freedom fighters of the past i don't believe in letting their story die with them no or dying with us no. so um it was a nice opportunity to include her in the book 
Yeah, and also it kind of makes you think of what's happening on the other side of the world at the moment and how many Absolutely. men are not coming back or, or wives or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, partners, are being told that their loved ones, you know, they'll never see them again. It's a very sobering thought, really, to be honest. But uh, Indeed. Um, yeah, just touching, you did mention about growing up in Porth and kind of knowing you were uh, different, for want of a better word, I guess, from other people. Um, uh, I've had a question from uh, somebody I think you know. It's actually Dominic Gunasakara. Um, and he's actually saying, obviously, you're looking back on those times there. Uh, subsequently, you've worked for a, a number of companies. And he just feels that in w- the work environment, is it more inclusive now than when, say, you first joined, when you know you were a young man and you went first into work? Would you say it's more accepted now or things have got better or are they just the same? I think it is better. Um, obviously, I'm not can't comment on any any specific organization um can i speak for myself but from from my view of all organizations at the moment is that um that nearly all blue chip companies um out there have um specific um projects and committees all centered around um inclusivity mm-hmm. and making sure that we are diverse and inclusive to to all people from all backgrounds which is really really important um that didn't exist when i first went into work and i think what is disappearing is um the exhausting need to continue to come out right, right. um and i think that's going to be a welcome relief for generations to come albeit the younger generations where i hope will never experience it but i think one of the greatest challenges when you step into adult life is people think you come out to your parents and your friends and your family and that's it but Mm. it's not it you keep having to come out in work environments in social environments um and i think what your sexual orientation is is becoming less important hmm. in some respects, and I think that's a massive difference and a and a big relief. So there's progress, but work still to be done. You would say, yeah. But I think I mean I'm very fortunate. I work for an organisation that takes incredibly seriously and doing and is doing fantastic work. But yeah, I think I think most organisations are, but I think there's always more work to be done. Right, Dan, I'm going to play a track. Um, I'm pretty sure you're going to know what this is or who this is. Um, and I will come back to you and ask you a couple of questions about why this artist has affected you or, or, or you place so much trust in her, I guess. Um, but as equally important, I'd like to know what the V limit is. Radio Glamorgan. And that, as, as if you need telling, Chris, is Madonna and Vogue. Um, um, <laughs> and uh, perhaps in reverse order, you could tell us, the listeners, what the V limit is um, and also why Madonna um, has played such a big part in your life. Um, the V limits, I mean, some people who've, um, who've been friends of mine over the years will probably, unfortunately for them, have observed it in full action. But the V limit, I've got, I think I was someone on a drunken night in my teenage years, in my sleep, fitted a switch to me. Um, so what the V limit is, is basically, um, when I'm out having a, a beer with friends, I'm a normal, sane, um, 
human being who who probably wouldn't dream of of gracing the dance floor and commanding um the the attention of the the audience but once i've had one too many drinks <laughs> I, I never know what that looks like mm-hmm. but i just know what it feels like mm-hmm. and the dj decides to play vogue then the v limit switch is tripped and i have no power <laughs> over what happens to me and i do end up um if not on the dance floor if there's a podium i'll find it yeah um i've been even known to move people off the podium so that i could get on it um i'm not sure how i've survived today through the number of people that i've removed from podiums on my way up um and proceed to um to basically do every uh vogue dance move that i can muster (laughs) in um my my non-trained um vogue personal way Are um, are there any videos of this floating around well, thankfully, um, the cruel the cruel days of, of videoing people <laughs> drunk and posting them on social media yeah. um, have come after ah, the heyday right. of the okay. um, of okay. the the V limit. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. so so I'm Escape. I'm safe at the moment. Okay, right. Um, but yeah, I know. In our time, you I knew you were a massive fan of Madonna, um, and uh, so what is it about her that is kind of you you were taking because you you actually um, devoted a whole chapter I think it is in your book to her so she's clearly had a, a big impact on your life yeah she did um, and I think people probably she's become a bit I don't know what she's become now people kind of roll their eyes now when you mm. when you mention the word but um, she was obviously uh, I grew up in the eighties and nineties and she was an icon um, she was one of the few artists solo artists that were you know powerful enough to sell out stadiums all over the world and had mass followings and um but the reason she stood out to me is nobody in popular culture was really standing up for for uh the lgbt community mm-hmm. when i was a kid you know there was no one saying be yourself no matter what and i think many great artists were leading the way in terms of defining the status quo like bowie prince boy george elton john and they were all like stunningly androgynous mm. But no one else was directly confronting homophobia and the stigma of of AIDS and what that meant, what people thought of gay people in interviews on stage or in the papers. Um, And Madonna was visiting AIDS wards before it was almost trendy to do so. And she campaigned really hard for, you know, for patient care and investment in medical research. But um, I think while parents were branding her the worst kind of role model, to me, she was the epitome of a strong woman who was ready to take on the world while influencing millions millions of kids to rise up and be proud of who they were she kind of um she made me realize that she almost gave me the my way or the highway attitude of um I'm gay deal with it yeah um and um there was very few people providing that influence and that direction when I was a kid uh, kind of going as I say, I don't. It's sounding like I'm jumping around here. It's just mainly because I don't want to give away too many of the great stories that are in your book because then there's no reason to buy it. And clearly, that's not the the object of the interview. But absolutely, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you talk about uh, your your life and the places that you've worked. We've, we've, we've touched on them slightly previously, um, and I think it was in 2005. You ventured to go to work in China. 
And I just wanted you kind of you take on what it was like, what the people was like, what it was like to work there. Um, and if you don't mind, uh, similar to the kind of V limit, could you explain to the listeners why your underwear created so much mirth yeah. with American <laughs> um, your American colleagues? Mm, yeah. Um, so it was it was actually volunteering, so it wasn't paid work. Oh, so uh-huh. it was um, definitely working as a, an English teacher, but not um, not being being paid. But um, it was um, just an amazing chapter of my life, really. And um, one of my best friends this day, um, Bethan, um, came with me, so I wasn't on my own. And it was a, just one big adventure. But it was um, really, really eye-opening to me because we went to a very underprivileged part of Xi'an, um, not far from where the Terracotta Warriors are. It's probably what it's most famous for. But, you know, we were confronted with, you know, people walking around the streets with rags, you know, people eating on the pavement and in the gutters, um, gross overcrowding of population. Um, it, you know, it was really hard stuff. And then, you know, we'd be ferried uh, across the city to these small outback schools um, where families couldn't afford to pay for the education for their children. The lucky ones um, were, manage, were managing to get their kids into these uh, volunteer-led charity schools um so so yeah uh that that was an amazing period um uh really really rewarding uh when when the going got tough we taught um when the kids were losing concentration um they were just so grateful for any knowledge they were like you know sponges they would just absorb it all and you know somewhere out there now there's a bunch of 20 year olds walking around Jian who probably know every lyric to a number of nursery rhymes um <laughs> in english i'm not sure they'll know much else yeah, but they'll yeah. be fluent in um in british nursery rhymes but no mm. it was um it was a brilliant experience but the um i shared a much to my disgust at the time um i shared a dorm with two um teenage lads from um hamptons in america hamptons mm. um and they had a um they had a class that they were doing supervised because they were younger um, and they were there with their parents who were in the next room. Um, and um, I got home from one of my classes one day and discovered that um, my underwear had been taken to facilitate a, a educational piece on the different underwears that you will find across the globe. Um, and they were fascinated by the fact that in the UK, men's underwear actually could be fitting to the body and isn't necessarily um, require um, mass lines of fabric to make up very baggy boxers um, uh-huh. stretched down to the knee. So um, a pair of briefs that to them resembled a pair of knickers. I um, don't know whether I'm allowed to say that on the radio. You said it. But, was fascinating to them so they decided (laughs) to do an educational piece to their class on what pants look like in the UK um, compared to what boxers look like in America and they found the whole thing hysterical um, but they were reprimanded for it and uh, I'm not sure that the um, that class was taught that that ever again but um, (laughs) but yeah they uh, they certainly entertained themselves with it 
Well, you, you, you never know. You may have influenced some Chinese people to wear British pants, mate. So, uh, <laughs> you, sure. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, I touched on it before that the, the book is not only just your kind of life story, but also a number of poems, uh, one of which you were good enough to read previously. Um, I'd be grateful if maybe you could pick one of your own uh, just to read out and maybe just elaborate quite the story behind it. Yeah, no problem. So I'll um, read out Little Leaf. You are a mystery to me, like the leaves that resist the wind through the tree, like the tree that holds tight to its autumn leaf coat, while the storm hands are clasped around its weakening throat. In our glorious spring we slept through the sun, in the autumn we woke to the sound of a gun, a summertime lost in a dream that has drifted, a wishing for strength in a winter soon lifted. The dusk is no threat to the light of a fire, the dawn is a promise that night will surrender. Surrender its shadows that threaten the light, restoring its brilliance, disarming the fight. I'm not letting go, said the leaf to the tree. I will never survive if your hands set me free. I will never feel warmth from your heart or the sun. So if I do fall away, then my heart will not come. The winter is tomorrow, and for now you're with me. This autumn we still have of so much to be. Little leaf you were born to be cradled by light, to withstand the wind and to dance through the night. Today is our time, so let morning take flight. No wind or a winter is nearing sight. A story to make and a sky to inspire. Little like a leaf to its tree, this love will not tire. Radio Glamorgan. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned before about the treatment, uh, certainly in the 80s, of uh, AIDS victims and um, the way that largely they were shunned by the population at large. Um, I know from the book that you feel that this was... Uh, again, uh, well, I've got to be uh, careful here because Radio Glamorgan is a non-political organisation, but I think you think that it was exacerbated by the way that the information was given to the general public? Yeah, I think I think there was... Um, I mean, it was... It was there was a lot of politics at play. Um, there's no getting away from it. I think the, the reason it struck a chord with me um, is that um, the way that governments, both in the states and in Europe and UK, dealt with it was um, compounded the intolerance that was felt towards the LGBTQ community. Mm. Um, it, it almost compounded the notion that gay people became lepers almost yeah. um, and should almost be feared. And I think the what that did to me as a child is I remember the horror of knowing that I was different and then seeing the AIDS campaign, um, TV campaign, and seeing one of those adverts and seeing the tombstone fall. And in my little young head, I thought, well, if you're gay, you're going to die. And I think to lots of other young people, they picked up on the stigma that was generated at the time because of the way that it was handled. And I think that propelled a lot of bullying. And I think that gave people the right to, um, to be intolerant. Right. Um, but but it's just you know it's an absolute personal view. Yeah. Um, but I certainly think that it took a a great number of years um, to walk away from the stigma that was created yeah. by the the AIDS campaign and 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 how it was dealt with and and how patients were treated, which yeah. was pretty horrific. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a, it's a, I think it's a documentary on Sky, isn't it, where it uh, uh, relates the, the early years of uh, the AIDS epidemic and, ha- as you say, how effectively uh, people who contracted the disease were shunned by the general public. So, um, yeah, thanks very much for that. I, I wanted to get your insight on it, um, just to hear uh, what you had to say. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in the book I, I, I might be generalizing here to a certain degree, but it do, you do seem to be attracted to spiritualism or certainly you seem to have tried out a number of religions, for, for want of a better word, uh, Christianity, Kabbalah, Buddhism, uh, Journeyism. I'm not sure quite what that was. You even went to a Quaker meeting, I believe. So I did. Um, I take it that from, from what I can glean in the book, you, you took something out of each of them, although they weren't... Uh, a perfect fit for you one wasn't a perfect fit for you um and on that uh kind of theme of the, the general theme perhaps you can tell me who suma the elephant is oh, okay so so yeah i think i mean i'm talking probably hundreds of hours of of reading of study of um i was very lucky that i lived for a period of time in um in swansea and wales and um, I knew a lot of people there that were um, working for um, for really great charities, um, so interfaith charities, um, brilliant charity called Peace Mala, um, who did a lot of great work. And through that, I got to know a lot of people in who 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 ha- you know who follows a certain spiritual path. And I was fortunate enough to be able to study and read a lot about. Um, a number of those things, um, and I think the if you if you know if you're willing to spend the hours and hours and, and years that I did reading and, and studying and researching some of these really powerful spiritual beliefs, the one thing that they all have in common is that the really simple notion of just be the best person you can be mm-hmm. um, and try to love as many people as you can and and and, and be a good person. Um, but yeah, what didn't work for me is, is all the rules that come along with it. And, um, I walked away from it all. None of it was a waste, mm. but just with a very clear view that I had my own version of what I believed and my own pathway to whatever the greater power is that was personal to me. And I, I didn't need to follow, a, a spiritual movement or be part of a spiritual community. So, um, but, but yeah, but the, um, but Suma the Elephant was, um, and I've almost been a little bit of a of um, an Adina monsoon in my time, so I have a bit of a fad, and I jump on it and I throw myself into it like two hundred percent, and then perhaps get a little bit bored of it and move away from it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that I, I did was, um, I mean, it's, it's it's known as shamanic journeying, but but actually it's not it's not dark or anything. There's no you know it's not. Um, you know, it's not black magic or anything, but um, I went on a, a day's course and we did this um, group exercise where you were sent on this journey with, a, you know, there was a, a person at the front leading the group and talking you through, you know, you were in this hallway and then you went through the door and then you were in this field. And then the, the voice disappeared and you were left to your own devices. And I imagined being in this field and there was an elephant in this field. And um, I imagined all of this and I, I use the word imagined because that's what I imagine happened. Um, and then suddenly you could hear the voice calling you back. So you walk back through this field and you see the doorway and you open the door and you go back in and you open your eyes and you're back in the room. So 
I'm a salesman's dream. I'm also easy to to put under any sort of like hypnosis or anything like that. So I'm I'm easy when it comes to things like that. So I, I followed these things hook, line, and sinker. Um, and when I came back around and back into the room, the the lady at the front asked us all to go around one by one and talk about our experiences. But what was absolutely fascinating is that every last person in that room experienced the same view, the mm. same field, the same mountain, the same spot where they stopped and come, you know, come across an animal of some kind. Because um, it was about, um, I think they call it your totem, totem animal. So um, the animal that's, uh, uh, you know, closest to your spirit. So it's meeting your spirit animal. So um, everyone had experienced exactly the same thing, but a very different animal. Um, and I'd obviously met this elephant. And when, um, just before the, the session finished, no one else had met an elephant. And the, um, the lady at the front said, who, who brought the elephant back with them? Because it's still in the room and it's not leaving. So um, I was a bit spun out by that. And I was thinking, how could she possibly know that? And, and um, anyway... That's besides the point. And when I got home that night, I had, um, you asked me about working in China for mm. a voluntary organization. And I had an email from that voluntary organization um, about um, that they'd sent me that afternoon while I was on that course. And it was the first email I'd had of them for a good few years. And it was about going to work in an elephant sanctuary in Sumatra. So I decided to name my um, little spirit elephant Suma. But, um, but yeah, all, all very, very strange, the coincidence of, of being on that day and then being sent that email and and the fact that the uh, the leader of the course picked up on the elephant thing before I'd even breathed a word of it. But, um, yeah, it was it was good fun. Very spooky. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Uh, I'm going to play a track uh, that's mentioned in the book. It's uh, Radio Gaga by Queen. Um, does this hold any memories for you or do you just like it? No, it's um, it's the song that was blaring out in Brighton when I did my first Gay Pride march, and when they opened the barriers and my group went forward, um, mm-hmm. that song was blasting from the um, from the buildings all around us, and um, the crowd were fantastic, and it was an amazing feeling. So it's got lots of very powerful memories. Okay, Queen, um, Radio Gaga. In the book, you're not shy, is that the right word? I don't know. But you certainly touch on relationships you've had in the past. Um, was that easy to write about, Chris? Or, or, um, you know, or was it somehow cathartic? Or, or, or did you just not think about it? Um, no, it was, it, was, it was cathartic, actually. Um, it wasn't easy to write about. Um, I probably rewrote a number of those parts of the book um, a number of times because it was difficult. And I think that um, this sounds really um, cheesy probably, but um, obviously when you walk away from a relationship, it's usually because something has gone wrong. Mm. Um, And I think that one of the things this book has shown me about writing is that it's a really powerful healing platform. and if you're really honest with yourself, which I challenged myself to be, otherwise what's the point of doing it? Mm. Um, You've got to be honest about, you know, the part you played in in those breakups. And 
I think what it did for me is in version probably 210, <laughs> I was able to talk honestly about about the positive, powerful impact yeah. that you know past relationships have had, um, and and to start shedding some of the the negativity and the stuff that wasn't good. Yeah. Um, so um, so in that respect, it was difficult. It was time consuming because you kept challenging myself, but I kept challenging myself. But um, but I was very pleased I did it because it was it was like a almost like a very powerful healing exercise, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, to say it's brutally honest, I was probably overdoing it, but I don't think that uh, I can see why you say that you rewrote it several times or uh, more than several times by the sound of it, because I think you you tempered it and you the way you actually placed your feelings was very gentle you know in the way that even though the breakups came you were always at pains to to thank the person for uh, their their partner relationship and because it, it could have been so easy just to be vitriolic I suppose but it certainly doesn't come across that way to to me anyway it it just seems like it's just, you know it, 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 unfortunately the relationship ended and that's that's how that that's the the be all and end of all it I suppose but um, yeah so um, let's perhaps move on to something a bit lighter then shall we after that um, <laughs> you you talk about your fantasy dinner party. Um, where I'm not going to say how you make your entrance because <laughs> it's overly flamboyant to say uh, the least. Of course it is. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, I would expect nothing less from you, Christopher. Um, but perhaps you can just name a few of the guests that you had invited um, and why they were significant to you. Because I guess that these are people who have influenced you or you admire or, or, or whatever. So maybe who's, who's just name some of the people that, that came along to that fateful night. Okay, um, so this this was me having some fun at the end. I think this was me wanting to um, to indulge myself a little bit. Um, but the the, the guests um, were Oscar Wilde. Um, uh, I mean, to, he's probably a hero of mine um, in terms of. To me, he's a master of literature and comedy, and he was you know a typical tragic tale of how gay life in the eighteen nineties went horribly wrong. I think. His picture of Dorian Gray was probably one of the the best things I've ever read, um, and I think what made him more interesting it was a bit. I think it was about him um, and the life he led, and uh, I just think he's fantastic. Then I got Matthew Bourne, an all male version of Swan Lake, which um, I absolutely failed to see it. I was not a fan of ballet when I went to see it. I won't, probably went to see it under duress. Um, and um, I was told, you'll cry, you will, you, this will make you emotional. And I thought, it, it won't. Um, and um, I was told it would get me in the last 50 seconds. Yeah. And it did. In the last 50 seconds, it killed me. So um, uh, I, I'm since a massive fan and followed their work. And um, Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> uh, comedic mastery as far as I'm concerned, the iconic tramp, um, another freedom fighter of their time in... in how they put it into their art. Um, Harvey Milk, another hero, visionary, freedom fighter, gay rights activist, um, died before his time, fighting the cause. Um, first gay man to be elected into public office in California. Um, and probably Martha P. Johnson, uh, who was a very famous New York drag queen, yet again, 
advocate for gay rights and a prominent figure in the um, Stonewall Uprising in 69. So, um, yeah, uh, and a co-founder of STAR, which was the Street Trans Action Revolutionaries, I believe, if I've got that right. But I think the, all, the thing they've all got in common is they're all visionaries, freedom fighters, and they were all perfectionists and disciplinary, disciplinarians of their art. Yeah. So um, they did what they did with spectacular fashion. And uh, worth buying your book just to and hear the description of your of your your entrance into the night, uh, to the night's proceedings down the marble staircase. Mm. So, uh, but I'll go yeah, no further maybe. than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll get into the end of the interview now. <laughs> you might well be happy to know. But um, uh, ultimately, one of the things I said at the beginning was the shone through was obviously the love of your family and your parents in particular. But another area that seems to stay with you in your heart, wherever you have been, and bearing in mind we talked about China, you've you've lived in Brighton, um, but your Welshness, the fact that uh, I think, uh, you know, you said you can take the boy out of Wales, but you can't take the Wales out of the boy. Um, I guess that's something you're incredibly proud to call yourself a Welshman. Yeah, I am. It's... um... I think I think is imp- well. You can't generalize. It's not as important to everyone, but I think it's um, important to a lot of people from wherever they're from. But um, it's a massive thing for me, and, I, and maybe it's because I have lived. You know, um, I've travelled with work and I've lived in other places. But um, when I used to cross the bridge and see the um, the huge Welsh flag at Celtic Manor. Um, it would literally get me every time. And if I was away from home, I was in London, I was in Essex or Brighton or Scotland, and I would hear, or even in America, um, and hear someone talk with a Welsh accent, I'd have to, I'd have to go and speak to them, which is a bit ridiculous, really, almost like a crazy person. But um, I, unlike hundreds of others, if I hear the Welsh national anthem, can't get to the end without without uh, tears rolling down the face um and when welsh rugby is on and we're playing on a national level usually six nations then uh that's probably like my v limit but another switch and i can't <laughs> explain what happens to me then but i become an unrecognizable person that shouts and swears and punches the air and, and screams at the tv and and yeah so it's i'm very passionate about Wales and how beautiful it is and um and all my favorite people in the world um are are in Wales um my best friends Sazel and Rhoda and you know all, all of the people that um I hold dearest and the people I I love the most are are in Wales and um Wales is my favorite place and I'm just lucky enough that this is where I was born and this is where I live so I'm very lucky yeah come around Beth okay indeed um just one final poem, if you can find one that you, you'd like to read out and maybe just uh, give us a brief explanation of, of what it relates to. Well, I'll do it in reverse, if you like. Okay. So um, perfectly um, uh, blended into what we've just been talked about. I'll read out The Three Feathered Prince, and it's about um, my passion for Wales, really, and how I feel about being Welsh. Brilliant. In the land of the songbird, I was born to the tune, a poet in blood not served with a spoon. From soft sooty cast to mountains so loud, sing voices of folk so humble, so proud. The harps in the valley play a song of the old, underground treasure, the kingdom of gold. 
the emerald grass protecting her soil, the daffodil crown applauding her toil. To be like the dragon is not to breathe fire, but be tender of heart to be strong to inspire. The land of my mother, my father, my race, the land that protects me with beauty and grace. Though I roam from the path, from my staff and my throne, it's to Cymru and Bith I will always come home. I'm not just a man, but a soul that prevails. The three-feathered prince, I am me, I am Wales. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Um, I guess uh, when people read the book um, and they, you know, they'll understand, I say, what you've been through, and not, not being overly dramatic, but obviously um, uh, kind of what life has thrown at you and how you rebounded and, and uh, everything that goes with it. Um, obviously, it's in chronological order, so it starts with you being a young man, perhaps, uh, not knowing exactly what uh, you were going through or, or what you wanted to become, etc., etc. Looking back, if you now, as a, as a grown man, could speak to that young man at whatever age, n early teens, I don't know, um, what would you say to him, your little Christopher, um, to, to kind of guide him through the maybe the choppy waters that lie ahead? To keep it short and punchy, I would probably say you are a great deal more than enough. Don't measure yourself by the limits that others place on you. Um, what they think of you or others think of you is none of your business, but being you, despite what others think, is all of your business. And trust your instinct will never let you down. Excellent words, mate. So what's next for you? Um, so in respect of Polish to Crown, I'm um, speaking at Swansea Pride um this month which will be a, a massive honor for me to be able to do that um i have been asked to um go and uh talk at the um the queer bureau in new york um which is also a massive deal and i can't be blown away by um the fact that they would like me to go and do that um i'm just working through whether or not i can do it um and um, a few more book things in terms of bookshop events. Um, and then I think I'll, um, I'll crack on with, with the next book. Just lastly, just say the book is called Polish the Crown. It is available uh, well via Amazon, I think, as we, dis uh, we agreed, is probably the easiest route to go down. As I said at the beginning, it's well worth a read. Uh, there, as, as you've been good enough to relay, there, there are moments in there that are touching, they're funny, they're just sometimes slightly surreal, if I'm being honest, Chris, but uh, <laughs> totally entertaining from cover to cover. Um, and I wish you all the best for the future. And hopefully in a uh, not-too-distant future, when the second book is out, you can come back and do it again, mate. Lovely, indeed. Yeah, so Do I'm going to play out uh, with David Bowie Changes. Uh, any story behind this? Um, so when I was leaving China, um, got in the car with my friend Bet, and um, we were driving through Beijing, and um, we'd left all the kids behind, and it was really emotional. And uh, this song came on, and um, we both had a, uh, a bit of a moment, but um, yeah, really happy memory, not a sad memory. Okay. Thanks again, Chris. Take care. Look after yourself, mate.